0: passage passages, verses 1-5, through and we read, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Father, tonight we come and, Lord, I, I ask a couple requests. First, be with my sister in Uganda as she is battling malaria right now, we pray that you would give health to her body and enable her to overcome that, heal her. And second, Lord, we ask that you would, I ask that you would empower me tonight, that you would help me to speak truth clearly and understandably. And then, lastly, Father, for the hearers tonight, work in all of us by your Spirit to build our faith in Jesus. We want full assurance here. So bring it to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to uh, chapter 5, we're coming to the end of 1 John. We're, we're, this is the landing strips in front of us. We're making our descent. So with that said, there's not going to be a whole lot of brand new information, a lot of summarizing and concluding. But he's going to say this in new ways. So it's still going to be fresh, but at the same time, it's not like we're going to find, okay, here are some new points for assurance. We've had our points of assurance. There's two conditions to be assured of eternal life. That's what the whole book is trying to tell you. How do I know rather than assume? How do I know, have confidence, have assurance that I indeed am an inheritor of eternal life? How do I know that? I can't. You can't touch salvation. You can't see it, color it, draw it, fill in the lines. So how do I know that this transaction of eternal life has entered into my heart and life? John writes, so that you can know. And the two leading arguments he has that create assurance, do you guys know it by now? Is that we have assurance of eternal life if, number one, we blank Jesus Well, good job. Half a year has done a lot of wonders. This is great. We love Jesus. And then secondly, um, we have assurance if we love believers, others. So that whole loving God, loving people. If this is working in harmony, then we definitely have assurance of eternal life. And so we've been looking at that for however many months and years and weeks it's been. Um... And that's what he's going to do here in these first five verses, is he's going to retouch on those two themes so that we can know that we have assurance. By the way, this is total... This is like a side note here. I was thinking today, during dinner and worship, what is... Why is assurance important? Earlier, had you asked me, I would have answered, well... To be assured of my salvation produces joy. That was John's opening introduction to this book. It was, I write this so that your joy may be complete. And it's true. When I know that I have eternal life in me, and I know that without a doubt, my faith is a joyful faith. It is so much confidence with God and happiness, and there's none of that doubt and fear and timidity. It's just boldness and enjoyment with God. But now going through this, and of course we all hit seasons in our walks, um, I would answer, along with joy, assurance is important because it it confirms that what you believe is real. If you don't have assurance that this eternal life you believe in and we talk about is actually inside of you and that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt when you die, you enter into eternal life of God, if you don't have assurance of that, then you're going to wander in life holding to my words and eventually wondering, is this really real? Is this true? Can I bank my life and faith on this? If you don't have assurance of it, why would you bank your life on it? So assurance is important because when we hit some seasons where you don't feel Christian, you don't feel like these things are really true, Where are you going to go to know to hold on? And John helps me because I can at least look at the evidences, whether I feel Christian or not, I can look at the evidences of my life and say, but I am matching up. So praise be to God, I'll put my faith in that and trust Him. So, end of that little section. I was just thinking about that. And I I think that's really important, that we don't doubt, do we have eternal life? Because if you start doubting that, You're going to start doubting everything about the Bible and everything about God. There's going to be none of that happy, assurance, confidence thing. You're going to eventually walk down the other... I did that church thing a while ago. Do you have assurance? Are you ever going to do that? You'll never do that. John argued in chapter 2 that the ones that do that walk off from the church. They're the ones that never had eternal life to begin with. That's why they didn't have assurance. So, he talked about staying... In the truth is assurance that you love it and you never leave it. And unfortunately, I have—I can count them. Maybe it goes over one hand how many friends have done just that with the church and then totally don't believe that anymore. To the point where they mocked my sister. They were hanging out with her and said, So what, are you going to try to save me now? This is a guy who professed to be a Christian, and I had teach here in this room once before just totally the other direction, mocking Christians, Are you going to save me now. How does that happen? That's why I think assurance is necessary that we leave this study, um, the, the entire study of John, just grasping our eternal life with firm hands of faith, knowing that it's there, lest we ever do that deviation. Alright, so there's my uh, soapbox. I'll get off and we'll get into my purpose tonight. Um, Tonight we're looking at overcoming the burden of obedience. Overcoming the burden of obedience. Because um, we've seen the two conditions through this book. Assurance, li- assurance of eternal life. You know you have it. If you love Jesus, you love others. But it's important to clarify here that my loving Jesus and loving others does not give me eternal life. I don't gain salvation from doing these two conditions. Rather, these two conditions prove that I have eternal life. They're evidences of it. So don't even go there and think that, oh, Brandon said salvation is something I can earn by doing these two things. I did not say that. I said that if you're doing those two things, then you know you already have salvation and it's working out of you. So these conditions don't give you salvation. They confirm your salvation. However, with that said, I can also say that if you don't have these two conditions of loving Jesus and others, then you are not saved. So while those two conditions don't save you, you must have those two conditions to be saved. Understand? So if I don't love Jesus and I'm not loving others, I can look you square in the face and say, it's likely you aren't saved. Because salvation isn't something we imitate. We just jump on a boat and say, woo, we're Christians now. Too much of that in the American church. Way too much of that. It's a rebirth. Verse 1 says that you've been born of God. You're reborn so that this loving God and loving other things is woven into the fabric of your new nature. It's who you are. It's not an act you put on. It happens. So if I see a a neglect of those two conditions, it's fair... According to the scripture, not according to what we want to believe. According to the scripture, it's fair to say, you don't have eternal life. And you're playing a dangerous game of assumptions. A little illustration. Jumping out of the airplane with a lunch backpack on, hoping there's a parachute in it. Dangerous assumption. So, that's, that's what um, verses 1 through 5 are going to help us. Look at verse 1 through 2, the last part of 1. Um, it says, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. So see there it's saying, look, assurance through loving others. And then it's talking about love for Jesus in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. What's the, con- the continuity between those two points? It's keeping God's commandments. Do you see that? In verse 2 and 3. Love for others, love for Jesus. Keep his commandments. So assurance comes through obedience to his commandments. And that's why I say if we're not loving him, we're not loving others, we don't have assurance. There must be obedience to his command to love him and others. That must happen. So there must be obedience. Now, at this point, I must throw up the caution flag so that you know where we're going. There is a great opposition against us in this area of obedience. Obeying God's command is not exactly easy because there is what John's going to call in our passage the world, and it comes and creates this feeling that if I obey God, I'm going to be burdened with rules and restrictions, so I don't want to go there. I don't even want to, I just save me, Lord, and I'm going to live my life. The world puts this burden on you, makes you think that obedience to His commandments is a burden. We're going to call that the burden of obedience, which is why I'm titling tonight's message, Overcoming the Burden of Obedience. And some of us feel that. You mean I have to obey God's commands? I have to walk according to His ways? That's a burden. If you've ever felt that way, this passage is for you. It teaches us to overcome that burden. So this is what we're going to see. This is our main point here. I hope to show us through these five verses that we have assurance of eternal life by overcoming the burden of obedience. So if we overcome the feeling that obeying God is a burden then you know that you've got that assurance. Alright, the bottom line is we ought to love God's commands and love to obey them. They're not some sort of like kick the can and say whatever you say, boss. That sounds good to me. That's that's where he's going to go here. Alright, so obedience through loving Jesus and loving others. So let's look at the loving other believers first. Verse 1 and 2. He says this, uh, we've already read it. He says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. In other words, if you love God, you're going to love other believers. It's going to happen. This is nothing new. We've heard John say this over and over and over. If you really love God, you will love believers. Um, let me, let's go through this, like chapter 2, verse 10, for example. He said, whoever loves his brother abides in the light And in him there is no cause for stumbling. In 3.14 we see, uh, we know that we have passed from death to life. In other words, we love God because we love the brethren. 4.7 Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you love people, you love God, in other words. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then the most compelling verse is 4:20 through 21. If anyone says, "I love God and hates his brother," he is a liar. For he does not love his brother. Uh, excuse me. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him: Whoever loves God must love his brother. So, when verse 1b here in chapter 5 says. If you love God, you will love the believers. This is nothing new for us by now. We've heard this many times. I know I love him because I love other people. But, there is a strange reversal that happens here in verse 2. He takes it the other way. What he's been saying is this. If I love God, then I will love other people. Now he reverses it and says, If I love other people, I will love God. You see the flop. Why does he do this? It's in verse 2. It's really interesting. When I read, I was like, why is he doing this? By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. So when I love God and obey his commands, then I know I love other people? That's a strange reversal of what he's been saying this whole time. Why, why is he doing this? I think the reason is What he wants to do is show us that my loving people must be done with God's love. If we love God, then we will love other people. So, we love Him, His love in us, we love people. But now he reverses it. If we love people, we'll love God. Why? Because he's showing that whichever way we go, loving people or loving God, it's the same kind of love that's working in that. It's the same source. So in other words, my loving God isn't some higher love versus my loving you guys. John says that it should be the same to the point that you can reverse the phrases and it means the exact same thing. I don't love you with a lesser love. I love you guys with as much love, or I should, love you guys with as much love as I love God himself. These John says... You guys are the offspring of God like I am. And so in Jesus is in all of us. We're all part of the Godhead. We're sons of God. We have to love each other just like we love Him. And if we don't, if we don't love each other with God's love coming through us, then what we do is we f- focus on our little emotions and feelings of love and we think that, oh, because I'm doing nice deeds for Cody, I am walking in love... Because I don't hate Noah, or I don't talk bad about John, I don't want to murder Bree, I'm doing really good. And we set our own standard of love, and what we can actually do is make a God out of that love. If our love isn't coming from God, we make a God out of our love. Because we begin to appreciate these relationships. We feel something of God in them. Uh, Take romance, for example. And if we ever go down those paths, without God's love being the thrust and the source of that relationship, you're going to elevate that love way higher than it ought to be. Because it resembles God's love, but it isn't God's love because you're not allowing Him into it. C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Four Loves. If you're curious about his full-on explanation of that, you can read that chapter 4 or 5 of his book. Um, So we have to receive... God's love and let it come out to love others that's the way to love other people that's why the whole reverse is to show that the love is the same I don't create some extra new love for Tim and then I have my love for God my love for God flows to Tim through me it's one and the same so that's why I think he does that and that's an intense intense qualification so how does that happen? Loving Him, letting it out. We talked about that last time, didn't we? Perfect love. What's perfect love? It's the complete love of God. Complete because it comes here and it goes there. It's not just one way. It's going two ways. So it's complete love. Perfect love. That's the phrase we looked at last time. So that's um, obeying God's commands by loving others. Now the the second one. Obeying God's commands by loving God. It's in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. <laughs> if we truly love Jesus, we're going to do what he commands, John says. That's so what Jesus said in John 14, 15. told his disciples, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So, again, this is nothing new. John is summarizing everything that he's been saying so far. However, do not think at this point that obeying God and loving God are the same thing. Because they're not. For example, I can obey God without loving Him. But I can't love God without obeying Him. They can be separated, and in some instances they can't be. Okay? I can obey God without loving Him. For example, I can say, God can tell me, Brandon, stop cussing. And I don't want to. Well, fine, you told me to, so I guess i better, if I'm really a Christian, I'm going to kick the can again, and I won't cuss then, and really just feel burdened by the command. I'm obeying, but I'm not loving in my obedience. I'm thinking, whatever you want, boss. But to love God, you cannot divorce obedience in that. You stop obeying Him, then you're definitely not loving Him. You're just having some gushy, mushy admiration for Him or something like that. So, that's, that's why But you can can't be considered the same, but they definitely go together. Um, you see this in verse 3. For example, it says there, This is the love of God. So first, you have to love God. Then it says that we keep His commandments. So love God, then you obey God as a result of your love for Him. It's not the other way. It's not I obey Him, then I love Him. It's I love Him, then I obey Him. And then the result is the last phrase of verse 3, and His commandments are not burdensome. So if I love Him, then obey Him, then I do His commands with no burden or obligation on my shoulder. I want to do it. Because the love is the first and foremost part of our relationship. Obedience is the aftermath of it. So obeying Him and His commands is just natural and free. But if I'm obeying Him without loving Him? Just because, well, this is what I must do to get to heaven, which, by the way, can't happen. Okay, you're not going to earn your way there, but there's this mentality in a lot of people, if I've got to do this because I've got to maintain my salvation or whatever, then you're going to have the commands of God and you're going to have the chip on your shoulder and the burden there and say, I have to stop sinning because God told me to. That's not a place that... Christians who have assurance of eternal life go down. They don't go down that road. They love God and they obey without a burden. They they want to do it for Him. Um, you guys know when you, you know, you get your new... Um, this, no, I'm not going to go there. I was going to say, you know, you get a new girlfriend, you do anything for them. But, no, you guys... that. It's, it's a really downgraded illustration because we don't love God that way. But, um... Anyways, but you know, it is that that delight. And that's that is though I, I do want to go and show you for passages that um his commands for the Christian that's assured of eternal life, they are not burdens, they are delights. It's not duty. It's a yay. I'm gonna read you three passages to show you this. Psalm forty verse eight. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is written within my heart. Psalm one nineteen thirty five Lead me in the path of your commandments, because I delight in them. Psalm 11947. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. He loves God, so he loves his commandments because they're together. And so he delights to do them because he delights in God. So love means obedience, but obedience doesn't mean love. It's the delight part. Now why would we why in the world do these people, these crazy maybe think like these crazy Christians delight to be told what to do by God? They delight in this stuff? Yes. Because his commands are good. And the Christian understands that and he wants to walk in commandments that are good for him. So obedience is not a burden, it's a blessing. Check out these verses. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. These are ones that you definitely want to mark, if not go to. Deuteronomy 10, 12. He says, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires this. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, then to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. He said every conceivable phrase of how to obey His commands. Fear Him, walk in His ways, keep His commands, serve Him, every conceivable way. And then at the very end, He says, the reason for all that is because the commands are for your good. So do it. What, what, what kind of good The kind of good that is protecting you from being enslaved or in in bondage to empty passions. I don't want you to go fill yourself with this empty passion, this empty junk. So here's my command to keep you in what's good. Exodus 20 verse 2. This is the very first word that God says before the Ten Commandments, which fall in the following verses. He says before the first commandment, He says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In other words, what he's saying there, before he gives them, here are my ten laws. Before I tell you to obey my commandments, I'm giving you these commandments so that you don't go into slavery and be in bondage to empty passions and desires. I'm keeping you away from that. I want to keep you in my goodness. Now listen to my ten commandments. Unfortunately, Israel didn't take His commandments in this way. They didn't see obedience to His commands as a blessing. They saw it as a burden. And this is what Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 28.47. Deuteronomy 28.47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. In other words, because you did not serve God, thinking his, his commandments were a blessing, they thought it was a burden. They didn't serve with joyfulness of heart. Because you didn't, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will bring against you. Because you did not find blessing in obedience, you found it as a burden, and you just grumbled your way along through, obeying God as you had to, they found bondage to their enemies. And for us, that'll be empty passions. So, what do we do here? Because I know not everybody sits there and thinks, yes, delight, blessing, obedience is blessing, that's me. Oh, I'm so glad someone's saying this. I thought I was the only freak here. Not everybody's thinking that. Some, some people are thinking, um, that's not me. I, I think, like, hey, my parents tell me to do the things of the Lord because ugh, it's only being told what to do. How do we overcome that burden of obedience? That feeling of, i got to. Before we look at how to overcome that, why do we get into that mode? Why, why do we look at God's commands as a burden? What happens there? I think that what happens is in verse 4. It says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What? Why why does he suddenly throw the world into this? I mean, that's right after he says, for the commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I take his insertion of the world there to mean his commands are not burdensome, but the world will tell you that they are. So if you're born of God, you overcome that mentality that, oh, God just commands a lot of burdens, and I don't want to do that. The one born of God says, shut up, they're blessings, they're for my good, I delight in them. We've seen the world before, it's in 2 verse 15. Um, this is where I'm going to back up that this is what the world is doing. It's telling you that his commands are a burden. Don't listen to them. The, remember, Do you guys remember when we looked at the world um, and we talked about it as Satan's NASCAR track? Okay, good. Basically, if you don't know what I'm talking about, the world is a system in which Satan has constructed turns to their called desires to make people not love God. They're turns that turn you away from loving Jesus. And these are named, in verse 16, 2-16, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possession. These things are trying to turn you away from loving Jesus. Now, in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, what the world is trying to do is turn you away from loving God. The love of the Father is not in the world. Turn you away. Turn your love away from Jesus and put it into other things, which is another name for idolatry. Put it into these desires, verse 16. The desires of the flesh, of the eyes, and pride and possessions. So that's the world. Now, if that's you, and you have done the whole world turning, you're into these desires and passions of your flesh, eyes and pride and possessions, what you're doing is, okay, I'm in these passions, I've turned away from the love of Jesus, and I'm in these, and yet I'm trying to keep His commands because I'm still a Christian, but what's going to happen is because you veered from the love of God, you're obeying without loving Him. Remember we said that you have to love to obey. So you're now turning away from His love and you're trying to obey And what you're doing is you're now finding that His commands are a burden. Which here you are in these passions and desires. And that's easy. Oh, holy moly, it's easy to walk in the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. You have to do nothing to do that. Just let your nature go. But to keep loving Jesus takes effort and commitment and faith. And so when you leave the love of God and go to those things and you're still trying to keep His commands, you're feeling this burden. You're feeling this, I don't know how to, I don't know to, this is so much easier, I'd rather, I'd rather. And then you're starting to think, oh! And you can't walk that way. You can't. You're going to burn out trying to do that. You're eventually going to say, I can't just keep these commandments. I just give up. It's too hard. What happens? You give way to the world system. You've done the laps 5,000 times. And you end up in 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. You begin to hate other believers. Because, oh, they find joy in God's commandments. Oh, look, they're doing the right thing I know I should do. And you no longer want to be with them. And if you hate believers, you've lost all assurance of eternal life. So, that's how his command, that's how obedience becomes a burden. Is the world comes and tries to snatch you away from loving God. Obey Him, but don't love Him. By all means, obey Him. The world would love to have you obey God, just not love God. Because they know that you'll eventually burn out in the obedience. Because there's the burden of obedience. So, with that said, how in the world do we overcome the world's burden of obedience? If that's us, if you've ever been there, if you're there now, where God's commands just seem like a burden, you're, you're not quite with verse 3 where it says, His commands are not burdensome. I think mean, what in the world is... How do you overcome that? Praise God. God, John, doesn't just say, you should just find them joyful and move on. He gives us answers. Thank you, John. Verse 4 continues. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Notice, this is how you've overcome our faith. Everyone who has been born of God has overcome the world. Who's that? Who's been born of God? Verse 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. you've been born of God, you've overcome the world. So in short, verse 4 tells us that that's faith. Whoever believes Jesus, that's whoever has faith in Jesus, overcomes the world. And this is such a big point to John that he rephrases everything in verse 5. <laughs> who is it that overcomes the world? Nobody, in other words, or except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the one who overcomes the world. You believe, you have faith that Jesus is the Son of God, the most glorious, all-satisfying, majestic, good being in the universe. He's the Son of Him. Do you have faith in that? You will never find obedience a burden. Faith overcomes the world that says obedience is a burden. Because The one who has faith has been born of God. Uh, Watch this, okay? To be born of God means to possess all the attributes of God. Uh, You have to to really diminish this. If you like a human example, you have a kid. We'll experience this one day, I guess. (laughs) Um, They have your attributes. Some of the looks, some of the mannerisms, there's, there's resemblance there. We, being born of God, have His attributes. That's why John uses that example. We are of God. His divine nature is inside of us. This is, this is how you see this, okay? Born of God. In like 2.29, for example, it says, if you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. In other words, born of God is having the attributes of God. So if He's righteous, you will be righteous. You see that? Um, in 3.9, for example, it talks about no one being born of God practice sinning. Why? Because God doesn't sin, so therefore if you're born of God, you no longer continue in sin. You're, you've got his attributes. Uh, 4.7 is one of the clearest ones. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and of God. So if I'm born of God I have his attributes, God loves, therefore I love. Do so you see that? To be born of God is to have His attributes. Which means that if I'm finding obedience to be a burden, what I need to do is love God so I can obey with delight. And if I've been born of God and God is love, then I can have love is inside of me. What I need to do is simply learn how to live in what's already in me. The divine attributes. I'm born of God. It's all here. But how do I get it from here into walking out and into practicality? That's why John says, faith overcomes the world. My faith in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God draws the things that are inside of me out. Okay, watch watch this in verse um, 12. Look at 512. Whoever has the Son, that's Jesus, has life. Now, in context, he's talking about believing. So, believing is receiving. My faith. Whoever has the Son has life. In other words, if you believe the Son, you receive life. That's that's another way of saying that. Jesus is the Son of God. He's got everything that God has. So, what has God? Joy. If you believe Jesus, you receive joy. If you believe Jesus, you receive peace. If you believe Jesus, you receive self-control. If you believe Jesus, you receive love. You see what he's saying? We're born of God. He's the Son of God. We have all of this at our fingertips. And faith is what draws it out to become ours. By believing, we start receiving. This passage shows this. Deuteronomy 30 verse 11. For the commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Why? Because the Word is very near you. It is in your mouth, in your heart, so that you can do it. We have the divine attributes inside of us. It's near us. We can do it. We need faith. Our ability to keep His commands comes through the faith that we possess everything necessary to keep His command. I'm not feeling like I can love my brothers, like His commands say. His commands say, love each other. I don't know if I can love each other. This is a burden. You're not walking in faith, because you have all that love that you need in Jesus. Believe Him. Receive it from Him in faith, and that love is yours. Because we don't obey God's commands because we stand up and say, I was saved by faith and all, but now I walk in works. So I'm going to try to love everybody. What is it? Colossians 2, Paul says, the way you receive Jesus, so walk in Him. You're saved by faith. Therefore, walk by faith. I love people because of my faith in the Son of God. I receive love from Him because of my faith. That's how I can love people. So... Obeying God's commands is not a burden because he empowers us as we receive his help by faith. So faith, God, I believe you're, the, you're Jesus, you're the Son of God, you have everything I need, I believe that, so I, I, I receive it. I know it's there, so all I, I receive it. I, I let you work through me. That's why faith overcomes the world's burden of obedience. So, last thought here. If faith overcomes the world and this burden of obedience, then it's logical to say that unbelief makes the world overcome you. I think that's why John emphasizes believing the Son of God, and he says faith so much in this section. If we do not keep God's command to love others by receiving love from Him in faith, then we're going to start to doing His commandments in our own strength. It's going to become a burden. You're going to get burned out. You're going to start to look for easier commands, which are things in 2.16, the lusts of the world. Those are easier. You're going to start going that way. And as you start going that way, you're going to totally give up on those because they're too hard, the love of God and all that stuff. And then you're going to become, just like the world, hating believers, and you're going to fully forfeit your assurance of eternal kind of life. <laughs> that is what's at stake there. So as we can see, we have the assurance of eternal life if we overcome the burden of obedience through faith in Jesus. He has everything we need to overcome. So we believe Him, we trust Him, we receive it from Him, and we conquer and overcome. We can love Him because He loves us. And we believe it, and we take it, and we grow, and we go. Let me know. I pray that you help these students here to find your commands not a burden, but a blessing. That you would give to us every single day the grace and strength necessary to walk in your commandments. God, we don't receive that strength because we so often don't believe that you'll give it to us. So I pray for your gift of faith to come to all of us that we would be people that look to you and say I am a son of God and I have everything necessary to obey his commands Father give it to us because we know we have it so help us to overcome help us to be stronger in our faith and never to wink or blink an eyelash that you are not sufficiently able to help us so come help us we want to delight in your commands in Jesus name we pray Amen